Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Warlord Games official podcast. My name is Brad, and this is the podcast that digs into all of the exciting games that Warlord Games puts out for us to play. There are just too many, and sometimes we just don't know what to look at or to what to play next. And in this case, we are going to be talking about an expansion to many games. And that's that's new for us on this show. And to do so, we actually have some pretty special guests. You would know this man's name from many, many game systems over the years. But if you've listened to this show, you've heard him before. He is, of course, the man behind Warlord Games' most successful game, we're talking bolt action, and if we are, we are talking Alessio Calvatore. Welcome back to the Warlord cast, sir. Hi. Thanks for having me. It is always a pleasure. How are you? I'm fine. Yeah, surviving. You know, the world is a bit complicated. <laughs> it got more complicated since the last time we spoke, but uh, yeah, well, managing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, you are not alone today because you brought a guest, um, your co-writer for this project, uh, a man from your own game studio, River Horse. Um, Jack, welcome. Now, we would know you from the Dark Crystal role-playing game, and you're also on the design team behind the Dragon Bond tabletop war game that is coming down the pike. I'm very excited to hear about that as well. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, guys, you have tackled no small undertaking here. You have not only created a new board game, but it is a board game that seconds as a campaign system that ties together all of Warlord Games' World War II games we're talking about victory at sea cruel seas blood red sky and of course my personal favorite bolt action that is a humongous project and i know you guys have been working on it for a while can you guys start by talking to us a little bit about how did this come to be because what an epic undertaking it certainly was a big thing it was definitely a big thing and uh uh the main, the, the main important, the most important thing is that it is a double undertaking because it has to work as a board game on its own and as a campaign system for the games you mentioned, for all the, the, the war games, the World War II war games or World of Games. And that's precisely why I thought that Jack would be perfect for this, for this project because uh, uh, where my strength is war games, uh, Jack's definitely role play and, and board games. Uh, and uh, so definitely we did it the, the fresh the fresh and the touch of the expert for board games here, um, and hence Jack. A map-based campaign system in and of itself will have lots and lots of individual rules, but then having a board game, of course, has its own set of rules as well, but having something that integrates both and makes it interchangeable, that's got to be very challenging. Where did you start with that? Did you start with the board game and then integrate in the wargaming aspects, or did you go the other way around, or was it more of an organic process that worked together? So the main thing, well, uh, one of the main things was that we wanted it to be a fun board game on its own. So it had to work in a vacuum as if you if you didn't have any other Warlord products, anything else like that, it just had to, to work. So essentially the, the board game sort of came first, but whilst doing that we obviously knew that we had this that we wanted this campaign element and to bring out all of the uh, different games together and so one of the very early sort of design decisions made was to ensure that whatever sort of battle resolution was used in the game um so when you have a land battle and sort of whatever sort of system we're going to use in the board game for that or an air battle or a sea battle that that was going to be sort of a completely enclosed system within the board game so in the board game it's quite a simple sort of die roll with some modifiers depending on you know how many units you've got whether you've got uh, special cards special bonuses that sort of thing uh, so it's this very enclosed system which makes it easy to sort of pick up say in the rules okay so instead of just rolling a die adding some numbers working it out from there uh, you can take that whole system take it out and replace that with a game of bolt action. Um, so instead of both of you rolling a d6, you play an entire game of bolt action, and sort of uh, that gives you the the result of that game, which takes a game that sort of would be um, probably about two hours, a um, bit more to play, into sort of a month long sort of campaign where you're playing the game sort of every. You sort of 
play the board game up until you hit a, a war game, then you play that war game with the other player, um, and then that that's probably your evening, uh, and then then you put it away and uh, continue next time. Now you did mention that the way combat works. I mean, you mentioned dice, and I know there are cards involved as well, and that that mirrors what might actually happen if you're playing a game of bolt action, but that works the other way around, doesn't it? Because there's another set of cards that you can interchange out so that when you are playing this, if you want to play the game of bolt action, those modifiers still exist. If I understand correctly, there's a card for an artillery observer, and so that might give you a bonus in the board game version, but then in the bolt action version, it'll actually then just give your side a free artillery observer. Yeah, we did uh, basically do, do some development on uh, how to represent some of the bonuses and the cards and uh, the modifiers uh, that are in the board game, what they would represent then in the in the corresponding war game. And uh, for example, for uh, for for Blood Red Skies, we we invited special guest Andy Chambers, and uh, obviously we we played a, a game with him, and uh, so that we basically wanted wanted his expertise for his system and how to adapt some of the uh, some of the uh, the mechanics of the board game into the war game. Obviously, I could do that for bolt action fairly easily <laughs> because I know bolt action very well, but exactly. I definitely didn't know Blood Red Skies as, as well. So obviously, we had with Andy. And, and uh, I mean, he also, he, to be honest, because he's such a good game designer, he's, he also made some very good suggestions for the board game element as well. So he influenced both, frankly. Uh, but yeah, so it, it was a, a an organic process, you could say, where you know it was both ways, trying to represent things from the war game into the board game and things that are into the board game. How, how do we translate those into into the war game through those cards, through modifiers, through different rules, basically. How interchangeable are the two natures of this game while you're playing it? Do you need to decide before you start? Or can you decide which conflicts you want to play out on the battlefield and maybe which ones you want to play as the board game? For example, I'm a bolt action player. I own the C versions of the games, but I don't actually own Blood Red Skies. So any of those conflicts I wouldn't be able to play. Are you able to then take some of these elements and play them as the board game but then also play other elements or do you should you try and separate them out oh it's definitely um up to you to basically include the games that you want to play and that you want to uh, collect or or bring into your game uh, if you're using sort of all three uh games so basically victory at sea or cruel seas if one or the other you can't um you can't uh use both because uh, that's how you resolve basically the naval conflict to use one of those two systems. Um, so basically, yeah, you could use all three, and you would end up with a sort of mammoth game, uh, which is going to take uh, like an age to uh, to resolve, and like going to be interconnected uh, war games of, of Blood Red Skies, bolt action, um, and sort of affecting each other and destroying units on the on the campaign map. Uh, or if you collect Blood Red Skies, but not any of the sort of other other games, you can um, basically just use that and, and do all your air battles in this more sort of um, in-depth way, but then keep the land battles as die rolls. Um, what I thought you were asking at the beginning of that question was actually sort of, um, can you decide basically halfway through a game? Oh, actually, <laughs> let's, let's get out the, the bolt action uh, uh, cards. And... Uh, that's definitely something you could do. Um, it's, yeah, you could basically remove the, um, so the, the cards in the deck, as, as we said, sort of um, that you remove and, and add in. And that could be done halfway through a game, to be honest. Um, you'd lose a bit of your sort of tracking of, of what's been destroyed and what, what sort of army is which. Uh, so you sort of have to do all that start of game prep halfway through the game. But you could definitely do that if you were, um, sort of picked up a get if you started a game using like maybe bolt action and about halfway through you're like oh actually this would be really cool if we put in blood red skies um playing a bit of that then you could go buy some blood red skies and sort of say to your friends okay let's let's add in these these deep elements um of this uh, of this war game uh the other thing is that if uh during the game there are some battles it's quite rare but there's some battles where it's like 
three full divisions of of tanks against like one lone guy on his uh, on a hilltop and uh in those scenarios you can sort of just say okay my modifier would basically make this this a sure win or it's you know not going to be an interesting game of bolt action so we just do the die roll i win and and we sort of move on so there's sort of that option for you to choose which games you think are going to be interesting to play if you um if you're sort of wanting to sort of cherry pick and i definitely think there's going to be players who, who just go no we play every game we do everything yes my <laughs> three thousand points against your 200 points yes let's play <laughs> this game i want to crash you mercilessly <laughs> yes I've, I've but actually Oh, sorry. I was saying uh, that one funny thing that happened there from it was uh, when we invited Andy for the, for the game, and uh, it was a specifically thing you said there, where where in in a game of Brother Escape, we were like, oh yeah, so we you could have this many squadrons and this many, uh, like you know, three squadrons against one, and blah blah blah, and it just went, that's not a game. <laughs> it's like nobody's going to enjoy that game. <laughs> so that really needs to be a modifier. So it, it, it was it was again a very because we. We played Blather Skies, but never to a level where we appreciate the, you know, the, the, that level of, of sophistication. So, so it was like, oh yeah, yeah, that wouldn't be a, a game, really, would it? And yeah, right. Good point. Exactly right. <laughs> that kind of thing. I guess that ties into my next question, which is, how fluid is the scale of the campaign system for this game? I mean, clearly in World War II, we have everything from a battle for a hilltop in the middle of Europe to the battle for Iwo Jima versus Operation Barbarossa. I mean, what are we talking? What is the scope of this? How slidable and fluid is it? Um, I mean, given it sounds like it's very possible to have very large forces on one side and very small on the other, how does that play out for you? So there are several maps in the um, in the box um, of the, the various theaters. Um, and these are sort of scaled to what makes an interesting campaign. Um, they're sort of various various sizes. Um, so you can definitely play a campaign where you're doing sort of um, the Eastern Front and you've got, you know, absolutely gigantic forces um, in the rule book. It basically says that a unit can uh, signify a 500 point army, a 1000 point army, or a 2000 point army, uh, and you generally you're trying to get sort of two or more units in a in a battle. So sort of a 500 point army means that you're generally going to be fighting sort of 1000 point games um, in bolt action. Um, and so so you can sort of say, okay, if we're playing sort of North Africa, then we're going to be playing smaller scale battles. Um, than if we're playing the Eastern Front. Um, and so, yeah, you get this sort of, it, it's up to the player at the beginning, of, of course, as, as long as you're, you're both playing the same sort of points and the same values, then it, it evens out. So, so yeah, it's, it's basically up to the um, up to the players what, what scale they want to play at. And I was thinking some of, the, some of the maps indeed vary considerably in scale. It's a big difference. So you could say that the system is, uh, completely uh, flexible in terms of you know, the forces you can have because it, to give, I was thinking the example in the maps, the, the Eastern Front one is a large part of uh, around um, Crimea that up to, up to I think we, we got to, in, to include Stalingrad in there, so it's a really big, big map, and while the, the, the and, and the, the, along the same lines, the one from the Western Front has Britain, there's the there's Normandy, there's like north north uh, northwest France. So it's a, those are fairly big maps. While on the other end, you you play on the Pacific sector, theater map, and it's good. It is the island of Guadalcanal, so you get the uh, the, the, the sea playing a big important power uh, place there. But obviously, the scale is not the same. So the maps are not all to the same scale. Which obviously means that again, because you can adapt what a token on the map represents. You know, is that a platoon? Is that a company? Is that so? You, you wouldn't go huge, 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 obviously, because it's bolt action. So you tend to, you cannot go over a certain size I mean, unless you have a lot of time, I suppose. <laughs> a really big <laughs> table. <laughs> you know, I, I, that reminds me of 
we designed these things to be played roughly by normal people, uh, normal gamers, where you have a six by four table and you know you kind of you can field your two thousand point time, etc. Then occasionally I'm lucky enough that I go and play with the Paris, where they go, ah, oh, this is my twelve by or John Stallard or Rick Priestley. And they go, no, oh, this is my twelve by eight table, and this is like a billion points, and and you start and they want mm -hmm. to play these games, and I kind of go, is uh, it? It's cool. It's gonna take us six days to play exactly. this game. Like, oh, well, things move really slow. This game is broken. No, it's actually designed to work on a six by four, not on a twelve by eight. So you may want to change the the range of things and the mo and the movement of things. Double everything, because otherwise we'll be here all day. Kind of thing. It's like I will never get anywhere at this speed. So yeah, but for you know for the average gamer, yes, you can scale it to the size that you want, basically. It's quite, what you have. Quite interesting about the um, scale, really. Of um, so when designing the maps early on in development, I was designing maps uh, just uh, his land his sea creating sort of interesting tactical little um, little maps that weren't really connected to any sort of any region um, and sort of that was kind of to to allow players to choose oh, okay we're, we're fighting over you know this this patch of of Western Europe or this patch of North Africa um, so there was sorry it's just to add but the, what the idea for me was at that stage we were thinking generic map representative of an area as in oh look it's desert this is north this mm -hmm. is north africa oh look there's a, a bocage and green fields and and, and field. that's you know that's europe western europe but so we were thinking more generic indeed sorry i'll interrupt <laughs> yeah so so basically these generic maps that um kind of didn't have a scale so you can sort of say oh you know, we're, we're playing on this massive area or this very small area, and that you can sort of choose what it is because it's sort of a fictitious area. But um, we brought that to to the guys at Warlord, and they they just immediately went, no, no, this needs to be actual sort of areas. That that's sort of the the joy of of Vault Action and historical wargaming, or part of it is that sort of oh no, we're fighting over Normandy. It gives sort of a an anchor to that story it gives um you sort of this feeling of of continuation of narrative of your your story it's it's more fun to say you're storming you know storming the beaches of normandy than just storming this hex here um and sort of so that was uh, that was where they they landed so there was actually a quite a that's quite a large sort of period of the of the development that um we basically it up sort of uh so we so yeah going through various historical maps and trying to find basically the uh the areas that created those sort of same tactical situations as the as the designed maps that we'd done before yeah that reminds me of uh, actually another interesting anecdote actually the fact that we went with a generic design and warlord went oh no, no, no specific historical you understand this is history this is historical wargaming uh, the funny thing is i don't think i've ever said this but actually when i when i originally was doing bolt action uh, my first design for the army lists etc basically there wasn't a say the american list there wasn't sherman uh, pershing stuart it was it was light tank medium tank <laughs> heavy tank really? uh, the, my my concept was you have those you choose you know you go right okay uh, what's a sherman sherman a medium tank with what gun and then you pick the gun you, you would have gone you know how it's a uh, medium how it's a uh, light anti-tank gun medium anti-tank gun so you go right a 75 mil sherman i go medium tank with medium anti-tank gun done that's the tank and then of course oh, I, yeah. I play my sherman so the, it was presented in a generic way and you could adapt it to, and it was presented as medium tanks. For example, the, the M4 Sherman, blah, blah, blah. And he gave you example, historical examples of what you could do with that. And of course, the first thing that Warlord went like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. You have to say Sherman, M4 Sherman. This is, and the fine is a medium tank with a medium Because it was like, probably will take a lot less space. It will be a lot more flexible. It's like, yeah, yeah. It also will not feel historical at all. It's like, no, ah, exactly, yeah, okay. right? <laughs> Part of the joy of a, as being a longtime bolt action player is literally digging through book after book after book for every little tank entry and finding every tank to match that entry and be like, ooh, I need one of those for my American army. Again, this reminded me of an even funnier episode, I guess. We got to um, Osprey. 
So we, Meeple, Sawyer, John Stallard, we got to Osprey to pitch the bolt action thing, the fact that they, they are going to publish it, except a big partner, important historical company that does all these historical books, etc. So in the meeting with all the big brass, the big cheese of Osprey and me and world, they go, oh, yeah, this is Alessio, you know, he's got lots of experience, he's designed Warhammer, blah, 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 and he's going to do the, the design. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I produce myself and I say, you know, uh, because yes, me, I've done this, and I was thinking, you know, I'm no World War II expert, but blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Everything froze. <laughs> you see the tumbleweed in the room. You know, temperature drops. I go, no, no, but I really like things like you know. Um, yeah. um, yes, yes, uh, saving private Ryan. I'm um, going for the cinematic. Um, um, I shouldn't have said that, should I? Because <laughs> of the horror in the faces of John Stallard. Going, don't say that. <laughs> okay, yes. Um, yeah, that wasn't the right thing to say. <laughs> I've seen that look in John's eyes. I know which one you're talking about. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, well, I, I want to get back to the maps. Did using real maps create challenges as a game designer, given that you guys were describing making maps a second ago? If you were actually using maps of real places as a basis, did, was it more challenging because all of a sudden you didn't have control over the physical layout of these locations and where you might put choke points, for example? So there was a little bit of that, definitely, um, which we have sort of gotten around by um, taking some liberties over what counts as land and what counts as sea. So if something uh, sort of takes up one hex, one and a bit hexes, we sort of have the choice of, Okay, is that going to be two hectares wide, which means you need sort of two units to hold it, or you know, if you have one, then they can try and sort of start moving around, um, or are we going to sort of make that one hex wide so that only one unit can hold it, and it's sort of more of a chokehold and harder to get two units to fight that one unit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So by sort of by making those maps, we'd sort of worked out what scenarios were created sort of interesting locations to to fight over and to um uh, to experience so with that information we could sort of use that with the historical maps to sort of take some liberties over the uh, over what counts as land what counts as sea because there's only two types of um, two types of hex in the game um well there's land and sea and land can have a road on it essentially which makes uh, movement a bit quicker and so yeah super simple but um, trying to create that sort of those choke points and making sure that C is useful in every game um, uh, well, without sort of making it dominant. Um, I think my favorite map might be the, um, the island of just uh, Guadalcanal, um, which is actually quite similar to one of the, um, the made maps um, previous. And it, it's very simple. It's basically just a big island surrounded by sea. So everything you have basically starts on, on sea, so in transports, which makes it really weak to planes. And you've got to just like take the island and sort of your your ships move four, whereas your land units move one, maybe two of their tanks or they're, they're blitzing. Um, so sort of you've got this option of trying to take stuff in transport ships around the island and sort of speed speed your way sort of to to key locations, or you can trudge safely but slowly uh, ahead trying to create a front and so yeah you've got this like challenge with uh with creating the maps of uh trying to recreate those those scenarios and give that sort of a feel um but luckily well i say luckily it's obviously a horrible tragedy but <laughs> world war ii did include a lot of theaters and a lot of places so you do have a lot of stuff to, to pick from when exactly when sort of using your maps um I'm very excited by what you're saying as a longtime Japanese player. Very excited, by the way. <laughs> I'm just going to quietly throw that in. Now, you did mention there's only two types of hexes um, on the map, and those are land, roads, and sea, which yeah. is kind of three. But then there are other pieces that you can put on top of land tiles to make them more strategic points. Uh, the game comes with radio stations, fortifications, cultural centers, uh, airfields and factories, and all of those have a significant impact on how the game plays, and they are strategic points that you want to capture or prevent your opponent from capturing. Can you talk to us a little bit about those? Because 
I think those will really add some interesting elements to the tabletop. Yeah, so um, they are the core of the game, essentially, of what you are playing over. Um, so uh, we came up with this really unique system for how you how you win the game. It's by having the most victory points. Uh, <laughs> Never so heard of that before. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, we're thinking of copywriting it. Yes. Um, <laughs> so essentially, um, at the start of the game, you place down the, the objectives. Uh, which is beautiful little um, plastic sort of um, hex hex pieces that um, uh, the warlord made, and you put those down. And basically, each objective can be one of two things. So um, the sort of little city token can be a cultural center or a operations like uh, HQ. I think um, uh, I'll get all of the words wrong because it's been ages since I've actually worked on this because uh, obviously it's gone through graphic design and print and, uh, and everything since uh, since we've been doing it and the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, um, it's worth pointing it out, sorry to interrupt, but uh, it's that the process of designing this game has gone through a big hiatus. There was a big gap in the middle because we did the design, then the, the, the worst of the pandemic hit and uh, actually we... The, our company was on furlough for a number of months, so basically everything stopped and then we started slowly to get back into it so warlord reactivated reopened things so the things started to happen again and also you could meet people again because obviously when you're play testing yeah you know <laughs> you need to kind of be in the same room very often and uh, so there was a big giant gap in the middle and uh, then it restarted which obviously meant uh, that we had to like uh, refresh our, our minds and go like oh where were we what were we doing it was a yeah, but... big thing I'm sorry, getting all the words wrong, basically. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so you, you've got basically, yeah, everything can be two two different things. So it could be a cultural center, which might be worth two victory points, um, or it could be the operation center, which might allow you to move a unit or um, get reinforcements to a specific place. Um, and essentially, so each each objective is worth a victory point when it comes up in the in the initiative deck in the um, uh, sorry, in the resolution deck, and uh, basically, they're, they're they're what you're you're fighting over, but they give you sort of special abilities as well. Um, so there's a bit of flavor on the map, um, sort of sprinkled in in there. And it feels very historical, right? Because the more you know, as a bolt action player, I came over from other game systems. Just love the fact that Alessio uh, had written the rule set, was very interested, you know, from a, a cinema, like like Alessio had said, I'd watch Band of Brothers, you know, where Eagles Dare, all of the classic World War II movies I was a huge fan of, but I hadn't quite gone down the rabbit hole of ordering all the Osprey books and watching all the documentaries. And, you know, now I'm, uh, I think, a card-carrying World War II nerd, but... The more I dig into World War II, the more you read about the objectives and just the, the areas around these conflict where they were fought. And while we don't always necessarily think about that on the bolt-action scale tabletop, for uh, a game like Combined Arms, you would have to because it is zoomed out and all of those conflicts were fought around uh, strategic locations and for strategic locations, right? So... I'm so glad to see those are there and that there's such a varied number of them. Now, when I was looking at those pieces, I couldn't help but notice there's three colors. Now, I say that because the box says very clearly on the front, two players. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that works? Because I know there's a couple of people out there who are really excited to use combined arms to run maybe an event day. In that case, would you have maybe one side controlled by a group of players and one and another side on another? Or is there a possibility of sneaking three, four player armies situations in there? Um, maybe Italy, I'm thinking of. Um, th there's different conflicts where there are different forces fighting. Um, so the game is designed around the concept of two sides, um, which could be controlled by two or more players per side. Um, so you could have sort of two axis teams, basically. Um, say, basically, whenever you have a have an army, uh, you keep a, a token with it. If you're if you're using the the bolt action um, sort of addition, uh, keep a token with it, and you have on your list. Oh, this is army one, and it's and it's made of this these units. Uh, this is army two, and it's made of these units. 
Um, so basically, you can share that out and say, okay, this this army is my Japanese army. This army is my my German army. Not sure why they'd be on the same front, but <laughs> and, uh, you can sort of um, mix and match basically your your forces like that. Um, whereas, so there's no there's nothing for sort of a, a three all on all sort of mode in the in the game. Uh, we'd love to see people uh, mod that in. Um, the three colors are actually um, so one is neutral basically. So everything starts out gray. Um, and then if I if I take it, I take the token off, I replace it with my color token. Uh, and if you take it, you take it off, replace it with your color token. Um, I mean, the, the three players or four players, I mean, the, the different uh, sides, sorry, rather than players, the different sides playing together is an interesting point and uh, could be an expansion, could be something, some online support as well. So, yeah, yeah. certainly pencil that in as a something to work on. You heard it here first, guys. I'm asking the hard questions. While I'm asking the difficult questions, how about this one? Given that every nation has its own flavor in all of Warlord's tabletop World War II war games, does that carry over to combined arms? I imagine it would be difficult given the abstractions necessary to account for the varied forces across the conflict. Is that something, did you try and keep it general because everything already has its own flavor? The Japanese play one way, the Germans play another the British play another in the bolt action sense, uh, for example. And did you just assume that all of that was baked into bolt action so you didn't necessarily have to put it into the combined arms scale? Or is that baked in as well? So there's sort of two two ways of playing. Uh, there's the original rules, um, which is sort of everyone is basically exactly the same. Um, it's all, all level playing and any sort of variation would be at the at the bolt action rule sees um, blood red skies level but there is an optional rule um of uh, the national advantage cards so uh there's a, basically a small deck of passive abilities uh, that aren't linked to any nation in specific um but uh you, you can sort of see which nations you might um give them to so um for example one of them is um the home front i think or the, the homeland card uh, and that's quite simple. Um, at the start of the game, you choose three objectives, uh, or it might be the three objectives closest to your sort of starting region, and you flip them over to your side. So you basically start in control of three of the objectives, um, and that's that's your bonus, and that's to simulate, you know, you're the defender. This is you're you're the one who owns this uh, this part of the world or has recently conquered it, and and that's your your control then. There's half tracks, for example, which allow your your infantry to move quicker on the on the map, um, and so there's sort of these these elements that aren't like physically tied to nations, partly because because we're talking about sort of it's the strategic level, but it's not the worldwide level. Um, it's quite hard to say. Oh, the the British had this bonus because the British had a very different way of fighting in the western front than they had over this this part of the world and and so sort of it's more to allow you to tell the story that you want to tell so north africa is going to have maybe different bonuses for each side than the western front um and so yeah that's that's very sort of based around allowing play like giving players a taster of of how they want to modify the game and um, it's quite sort of flavorful i think it's it's literally just like saying uh, here's some cards. Here's the rules. Choose, choose one each. Um, but to be honest, if you if you think oh, this fits this fits my faction, you know, I'll choose two. You choose two. Um, then you can take that as, as far as you like. It's a bit like the if people are familiar with the from, with bolt action, the is a bit like what we did, the decision we took for the for the British forces, the Commonwealth forces, where we went. Well, you know, uh, we don't want to get into the discussion. Are, are Australians tougher than the New Zealanders? And <laughs> that kind of conversation is like, yeah, maybe let's not get there. You know, are the Gurkhas better in close combat than these? Other? So yeah. we just went, right, these are the possible abilities, the possible, you know, that, that kind of give you the idea of these guys are good at the specific thing. 
make your decision of what you think is the right match <laughs> you know like so, so that we didn't want to get there also because we were too as we know because it's you know, still fairly close you also there are some uh, political correctness the things that you don't want to get into and just like nope you know if you think you know one side was evil and the other was good that, that you know there you go you do that and we you, you keep it generic and uh and flexible so people can make their choices of you know who's tougher in the charge exactly. these guys or those guys well, I'm glad you guys have mentioned now the four maps, and I was going to bring this up as a talking point, but the contents, of course, of the box, we have the rule book, obviously, but we have four game maps. Now, there is Northwest Europe, we have the Eastern Front, we have North Africa for all you Desert Wharf gentlemen out there, we have <laughs> the Pacific Theater as well, which we've unpacked as Guadalcanal. We have the orders board and the operations board. Can you talk to us about how those work as far as how the game goes? Is that just to track your cards and your forces as you're playing through? So um, because this is sort of based as a um, sort of a, a, a board game um, sort of first um, or uh, so it has to work independently as a board game, um, there's so there are other campaign systems that are very much um a very simplistic way of of just sort of saying okay you you move you move your units around a map and when they meet you play a game of warhammer or something um and so basically those those systems rely on the fact that a war game is really fun to play um so you, you you actually almost with those want something that gets out of the way and it's as simple as possible and just uh, it's just moving stuff on a on a map whereas with uh, combined arms we were going for, for more a um, an evolved uh, system so the um the orders board is basically your main um sort of your first loop of play where that's how you actually sort of move your units so the orders board sort of has three main sort of rows um, the land orders, sea orders, air orders, uh, each with sort of three, two, one across it. So if I place one of my order tokens on the land orders, I choose three, two, or one, uh, usually three, and I get to move three of my units on the uh, on the game map. Um, uh, basically, either units on land, units on sea, and uh, or basically place my my air units onto the uh, onto the map. Uh, but I've also blocked that sort of off from the other player. So that sort of signifies like I've been focusing on on maneuvering land forces. I've decided to sort of I have the initiative if I'm going first in the round, and I've decided to sort of outplay you on that on that. Uh, then you choose and so you could either choose to take the two space on the land or three on either of the others. Um, so that sort of means that you've almost got this worker placement trying to sort of out outplace each other and um you've got this sort of extra resource going on of, of what what is going to be um usable yep so is that where the blitz tokens come in as well because i've i know there's tanks i know there's infantry i know there's planes and i know there's ships and there's a blitz token in there as well for each force so the blitz tokens are basically a way of um uh, bringing in that uh, ruse element of um, it's it's impossible to know exactly what your your enemy has at any any time. Basically, uh, when you move, uh, you'll often have the option of doing a concealed move, where you take the token off of the map um, and you take a scout token, which is basically just a blank token. Uh, shuffle those two tokens together. And then you basically move both tokens as if they were the unit that you're moving and place them down, face down. So they don't know whether you've gone north or whether you've gone south. Um, and you could be going either way. I love it. You can move one normally on, on land. You can move one. Or you can move two and place a blitz token on it. Um, and what the blitz token does is basically when that card is flipped, uh, when that token is flipped, uh, if it's an infantry division, then it can't help in, in combat, basically. It's, it's moved too fast, it's it's out, it's in disarray. Uh, it's got to spend a turn to basically get rid of the Blitz token. Um, if it's an armored division, it doesn't care. It, it moves at a higher speed. It, um, so basically, that Blitz token is kind of saying to the to the enemy, oh, this is probably, I'm, I'm saying this is a tank. Like, 
yeah, I'm moving faster, so you you're like, oh, this is a tank, um, which is actually a um, a mechanic that we first sort of messed around with in our um, the very early days of River Horse. Now, um, the Red October um, board game, which never ended up surfacing and seeing the light of day, but uh, had this similar sort of move concealed move mechanic, um, which is always something I've uh, I've enjoyed in games that kind of double bluffing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a there's definitely something about inspiration from older games. Uh, is something that uh, obviously you bring to to new games. You're you're designing is something you enjoyed when you when you were younger. You played and or you enjoy playing. Uh, in my case, I guess uh, your audience, some of them will be old enough to remember games like uh, Empires in Arms by Avalon Hill or uh, Mighty Empires by Games Workshop. You know, there's quite a few of those games that are to me. Uh, are connected to these huge campaigns played with friends that lasted, you know, a game of Empires and Arms lasted a year. <laughs> so it was like, you know, the map, gigantic map, left the Jervis's home, and Jervis was was running it. Had a the, obviously had a game room, so we could leave it there. And you meet every Friday. You do the moves on the map. You banter because you're you're playing. Suddenly you're in character. You know, you're you, you put on your accent uh, depending on what nationality you're playing, and. Uh, and you do all the campaign level things and then maybe during the the rest of the week occasionally longer obviously depends on the time but you you get you meet to play the to resolve the combat with war games so so it becomes a kind of a ritual that lasts for maybe i don't know in our case it lasted a year (laughs) of this game lasted one year it was the longest game ever played and i have so many memories out of that you know is all the the i remember in any board game that I play with a friend of mine now, whenever I backstab him, uh, I would say, this is for Bavaria. <laughs> because he backstabbed me majorly in Bavaria during this year-long campaign. So, you know, whenever, whenever I backstab him, it's because of Bavaria. I remember Bavaria. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think that these games have the beauty of creating the kind of story it becomes a story you share with your friends and you remember it and in my case for all of your life it's you know you can make it really a thing i think we've just learned not to make you hold a grudge because uh <laughs> yeah i think uh, i think i just discovered that about you alessio note to self don't annoy alessio got it no, but you're right. I remember fondly my days in college of, and you mentioned Mighty Empires before. We had a Mighty Empires campaign, but we also had epic Axis and Allies games where I wish that we could have pulled those battles out and actually played them on the tabletop. And now we can. I just hope that unlike college, we don't end up in a, a, a an embarrassing fistfight on the front lawn every time uh, we were, you know, four hours into the game because somebody backstabbed <laughs> somebody else. I have to say, I am very excited about this. I, I know that there are a lot of different cards depending on which mode you're playing the game in, but this comes with six card decks in it. We have almost 70 tokens. There's army, uh, plastic army markers. There's tons of objectives. We've talked about tons of these things. I I know we're only scratching the surface of this, but I am so excited to see this, to play this, and to get combined arms on the tabletop with my friends and hopefully setting some grudges going into the future that I can lord over my friends for the next (laughs) 20 years. It's going to be great. Oh, and there's another mechanic that I think is worth mentioning, really, because I think it's really it's something that is very characterful. And this one we should definitely copyright. <laughs> uh, the idea is um, the reinforcements, the way they work, the fact that uh, in order to kind of bring balance to the to the game and uh, readdress if uh, there's a runaway player kind of syndrome, is that uh, a reinforcement? The more you you're doing well, the more you're capturing uh, objectives, uh, the the, the the least uh, you get reinforcements because that simulates your headquarters being happy with you and therefore thinking, oh, he's do- they're doing fine. They don't need any help. They're, they're good. Uh, while at the opposite, your opponent will be going, send reinforcements, send help, send help. We are losing, you know, this, this sector is, is compromised and therefore you get more troops, uh, which I think is good in terms of game balance. That is also flows really naturally feels right so that was a that was a a good a good adding i think to the, to the system yeah it's, it's also a nice way of so it, it starts 
fairly small in terms of uh, you you choose six out of the 18 units, I think. Um, so you can choose to focus on having a mostly sort of airborne force or a mostly um, land-based force or, or what have you. But as the as the game progresses, basically whenever anyone gets a victory point, another the other player can choose one of their units and, and add it to their reinforcements. Um, so basically if I get three victory points really quickly, you you've added sort of half of your army again um and you're and i'm going to be at this this disadvantage um but as you sort of take over i'm going to regain forces uh, and it we call it escalation um in the uh, in the book and essentially it means that at the end of the game you're both sort of covering the map with your your forces and you've got these huge huge battles and um sort of pushing forwards and sort of front lines being formed so yeah it was a nice way of uh of having the start of the game and the end of the game have these sort of different scales um, within the same time period. That actually brings me to an interesting question. As far as setting up the game, clearly we've talked about there being four separate maps, and each map has its own character and has its own scale and size. But with the objectives that we were talking about before as far as having like a, a radar station or a communications complex, a built-up area, supply depot, observation point, airport, factory, et cetera, et cetera. How are those actually deployed on the tabletop? Are there scenarios within the game that vary where you put those or are they sort of supposedly built in to match where cities or where these things would be on the real map in real life? Or does it vary? How does that work? Uh, so they're placed by the players uh, in alternating. Um, there's, there's essentially, uh, I think, you're not allowed them within a certain distance of the board edge, and you're not allowed them sort of within a certain distance of each other. So you generally have them sort of spread out across the uh, across the board. But parts of the map will definitely be sort of more dense with with objectives than other parts. Um, and yeah, you you take an in turn placing the objectives. So I'm obviously going to try and place them sort of where it's going to be most advantageous for me, and you're going to try and place them where they're most advantageous for you. And I'm sure that some players will uh, go at it with a boring attitude, so exactly as described. <laughs> some other players, more historically minded, will go, oh, we should put this one here, because look, this is where X city is, and therefore that's an important cultural center. There you go. Put it there. So yeah, you, you can do either. The other thing I, I do like about objectives um, from a sort of thematic point of view is that um, because they're your victory points and they're also this extra little bonus throughout the um, sort of passive bonus if you're if you're in control of them uh they're really important and you're going to hold them like with with your main forces and, and as much sort of force as you can muster and what that means is that quite often your battles will happen next to an objective or near an objective or on the way to an objective um and because they're all these sort of um these iconic sort of styles of of complex uh, like airfields and cities and, and this that and the other um i think that there's no actual rule saying oh if you're fighting next to an airfield you should put an airfield on your on your game map but i know that <laughs> but i certainly hope that uh, war gamers will take uh, inspiration from that and go okay well we're fighting over you know the radar station so bam here's the radar station that we're fighting over Exactly. Um, put the terrain down around it and sort of create that that narrative and tying that game narrative of those little stories into the big narrative of the, the sort of the theater that you're playing over is is the key to a game like this and having those objectives actually makes a tangible difference for your force on the tabletop if you're playing this in in the war gaming sense um, and i guess also in the board game sense right yeah, so the objectives mostly give you strategic bonuses of uh, they might give you more victory points, they might give you uh, extra movement on a various, um, I think um, the supply depot, for example, gives your units plus one movement if they start ne uh, next to it at the beginning of their turn. So generally, they're quite useful to uh, to hold and sort of make use of throughout the strategic um, area. And then they give you, well, you're going to fight over them in the, um, in the bolt action on the... Uh, sees uh sort of um theater brilliant and again that plays differently from the actual cards um how does one get cards as far as the game goes i know you would probably start with few but how are they divvied out over the course of the game 
so you draw a you draw a, you have a few at the beginning of the game um and cards are all um double-ended so every card has basically two things it can be used for and so you might be able to play this as a bonus in a sea battle or as extra movement for a naval unit or something like that and basically whenever you i think at the end of the round um, this is something that, that changed a few times but uh, so i'm not certain uh, I think at the end of the round, um, each player draws a card, so you're always going for this, this passive income. Um, but also, you can um, spend an order. So instead of moving your land units, your sea units, or your or placing your air units, you can place onto the uh, gain the initiative, which, if you already have the initiative, just means you keep it and nothing happens. Uh, whereas if you don't have the initiative, then you basically take uh, the initiative token, put it in front of you, which means you're going to act first next turn but also uh, you draw some initiative cards. Um, so that sort of gets you the, this influx of, uh, of special actions. Well, Alessio, Jack, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for coming on the Warlord cast. I cannot wait for Combined Arms. I pre-ordered it. I can't wait to get my grubby paws on it and play it to death. Alessio, it is always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, sir. We look forward to seeing what great things are down the pipe at some point or another. Please keep up all the great work, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you for being here. And Jack, thank you very much for coming on. Welcome to the show for the first time. And uh, I, again, can't wait to uh, enjoy the fruits of your labors. Have a great one. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to the Warlord Games official podcast. This show runs largely on requests, uh, both from Warlord Games occasionally, but largely from you, the fans. If you have anything that you would like us to cover on this show, uh, guests you'd like me to speak to or speak to about a particular game that you're passionate about, please go to the podcast network that this podcast resides on, which is the Cast Dice Podcast Network. That's C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. And if you go to Cast Dice on Facebook and you message that page, you're guaranteed a response by me. Hi, my name is Brad. Uh, and we will endeavor to get all of your requests met either on this show or on Cast Dice, other fantastic podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us tonight. We at Warlord Games would like to wish you a happy and safe evening. Good night.